Glenn. Please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, we will begin this morning. Two chapters left, 21 and 22, we will take up this morning uh, the first eight verses of Revelation 21. I begin uh, this morning before I read with a question for you, and that is that do you ever feel like um, the weight of the world is resting on your shoulders? Do you ever feel like there's some pressure in your life that uh, you don't know will ever go away? Maybe it's health, maybe it's relationship, maybe it's something else, but you ever feel like that? You ever feel like um, there's no light at the end of the tunnel? All of us, surely, if we don't feel like that now, have felt like that at some point. If you haven't, you will one day. This chapter is a, a, a helpful chapter when we feel like that. This chapter is a beneficial chapter when we feel like um, whatever it is that we're going through is just not going to end. The Lord gives to us uh, some wonderful encouragement and comfort in these first eight verses. So I'd like to read them for you this morning. Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you have been here as we've gone through this book together, or you've just read through Revelation on your own, uh, you probably know that, that one of the major themes of the book of Revelation is that judgment is coming. That one day Jesus Christ will return and one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Christian, did you know that you've already been through judgment day? Did you know that for you who embrace Christ as Savior, did you know that the day of judgment is in your past? Our judgment day took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for all of our sins. 
On the cross, as, as Jesus hung there, he took the judgment, the full judgment that we deserve so that we will never, ever face that judgment. In fact, there's a very important word in the Bible that, that describes what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's the word propitiation. Children, maybe you've heard that word before, either here in church or reading your Bible at home with your family or on your own, propitiation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for all of our sins. John says also in 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a weird word kind of for us. We don't use that word often. But it's a very important word. Propitiation. The, the Greek word that's translated that way simply means to appease or to smooth over. And it, it wonderfully describes for us what Jesus did on the cross. He appeased or smoothed over God's wrath. And so because of that, the, the believer can say, for me, judgment day was 2,000 years ago. That was the judgment. Christian, the, the price has been paid. The justice of God has been satisfied. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore, there is because of the work of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. No judgment for those who are in Christ. Now that changes the way that we look at the future return of Christ. That changes the way that we think about the coming of Jesus. Instead of, instead of thinking of that day with fear and anxiety and, oh no, what's going to happen to me? We think of that, great, that day with great joy. Because Jesus has fully paid for all of our sins. And when he comes, he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what our passage is about this morning. Christian, rather than, than fearing the coming judgment, we, we want to look forward to that day. We want to look forward to what awaits us. And as we look at our passage this morning, John tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us two things about that great day. Number one, out with the old. And number two, in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. I want you to notice some two statements that John makes here. First, in verse 1, he, he tells us that the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Second of all, in verse 4, he tells us that the former things have passed away. Do you see that? First heaven, first earth, passed away. The former things have passed away. Now, what exactly does that mean? What former things will be no more? Well, John tells us, the end of verse 1, the first thing he tells us is that the sea was no more. Now, for some of us, this is kind of troublesome. 
I've told you this before. I've lived my entire life on the West Coast. I think this is the furthest I've ever lived away from the ocean. It's still not that far away. And, and as I've told you before, if I was given the choice to go to the mountains or to the ocean, I'm going to pick the ocean every time. I love the beach. I love the water. But, but now we, we read this passage, and John is telling us that when Jesus comes and when he ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, the sea will be no more. That's kind of troubling to those of us who love the ocean. How can, how can the new heaven and the new earth be all that amazing if there is no ocean, if there is no sea? But we have to remember something. We have to remember that once again, what we're told in the book of Revelation, much of it is symbolic. And so think here of, of a couple of things that the sea symbolizes. First of all, in the Old Testament, the sea is a symbol of chaos. It's a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of turbulence. For example, in Isaiah chapter 17, we read, Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of the great waters. The sea is a picture of chaos. It's a picture of turbulence. In Ezekiel chapter 32, Pharaoh, children, you remember Pharaoh, right? King of Egypt, persecuted God's people. Pharaoh, in Ezekiel chapter 32, is pictured as a great sea monster, Thrashing about in the water, symbolizing his, his persecution of the people of God. Again, the, the sea is a symbol of, of evil and chaos. And, and we can see how that's a very fitting description of our world today. Our world is a world of evil. It is a world of chaos. It is a world of great upheaval and, and turbulence. And so that's the first thing that, that we can know about the sea. And when the Lord Jesus returns, when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, that which the sea symbolizes will be no more. Evil and chaos and raging will be no more. But secondly, the sea is not only a symbol of, of chaos and evil and turbulence, it's also a symbol of separation. Children, do you, um, do you know, do you remember where John was when he wrote the book of Revelation? He was on an island. He was on an island called Patmos. Patmos was a, it was a relatively small island. It was about 10 miles long. At its widest point, it was about five or six miles wide. It was located about 50 miles west uh, off of the, the coast of Asia Minor. And so John wrote this book on an island. Now, now when we hear about islands, we think about great places to vacation, the Hawaiian Islands, uh, Fiji, uh, the Bahamas, Tahiti, places like that. But did you know John was not on vacation when he wrote this book? John was not sitting on the beach in his Tommy Bahama chair relaxing, writing the book of Revelation to these seven churches. He was there because he was being punished. Did you know that the Romans used the island of Patmos to, to punish those who broke the law, at least their laws? And so John was there because he refused to quit preaching the gospel. He refused to quit preaching Christ. He refused to quit preaching that the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus. And so they took him and they stuck him on this island. And so imagine that you're John for a moment. You're on this island. It's a, it's a rocky 
barren island. You've been put there because you won't stop preaching the gospel. And you're writing this letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but you can't go see them. You can't go deliver these letters yourself and see these fellow believers. I I think that, that John had a love for the churches like Paul had a love for the Thessalonians. We've been seeing this on Sunday nights, right? Paul loved that church, and he, he was just torn up inside that he couldn't go see them. And I think the same thing was probably true with John. Here he is, stuck on this island, and he can't see these Christians. He can't see his fellow believers because they are 50 miles across the sea. And so the sea is a picture, a symbol of separation. Unfortunately, separation is part of life. Some of you are, are lonely. Maybe a spouse or a close friend has been taken away from you. Some of you miss friends or family who live far away from you. Separation is a hard thing. But when Jesus returns, there will be no more separation. When Jesus returns, there will be no more goodbyes. That will be gone. John goes on in verse 4. He tells us what else the new heaven and new earth will not contain. Notice what he writes there. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you're a Christian, this is a very significant verse for you. It's a verse that that I almost always will read in a memorial service because it reminds us in the face of death, in the face of loss, in the face of sadness and separation that we have a great hope. This is a most profound verse because it tells us that one day all of the effects of sin will be gone. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more crying or mourning or pain. God promised this in the Old Testament. He said in Isaiah chapter 25 that he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He promised this in Isaiah 35 when he said sorrow and sighing shall flee away. He promised this in Isaiah 65 when he said, No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I said to you all last Sunday night that death is a horrible thing. And and even though we as Christians don't grieve as those who don't have any hope, we, we still grieve. Death causes sadness, it causes mourning, it causes crying, it causes a a sense of of loss that doesn't really go away in this life. But God is saying to us here, on on the day when your Savior returns, you will never again experience the results of sin. All of that is going to be behind us. All of that will be in the rearview mirror for us if we are Christians. Death and loss and crying and pain and, you know, just the burden of living in this world. It's going to be gone forever. I don't know what burden you are dealing with right now. 
But, but surely there's something. There's something for all of us. Let, let me encourage you this morning to, to believe God's promise here. To embrace what God tells us with, with faith. To, to say, in a sense, yes, this, this life isn't easy. Yes, there are things in my life right now that are difficult, but, but God tells me that he's always with me. God tells me that the, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with what awaits us one day. All of that will be gone. Out with the old. But the second thing that John tells us here is in with the new. He tells us three things that will be new about the new heaven and the new earth. First of all, he tells us about the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We're going to look at this um, in greater detail in our passage next week. But, but for now, let me just say this, that the holy city is being pictured here as a bride on her wedding day. We had a wedding here yesterday. We have, Lord willing, another wedding to come next Saturday, another wedding after that in September. Uh, and if you've, if you've ever been involved in a wedding before, maybe it's your own wedding or, or the wedding of a child, you know that a lot, of, a lot of stuff goes into wedding planning, right? A lot of time and effort is spent to, to make sure that the, the bride looks her best on the wedding day. Studies show that, that the average bride spends about $2,500 for her dress and her makeup and her hair. It's an important day, and it's a, a beautiful occasion. And, and here what's being pictured for us is, is the beauty of eternity. The beauty of eternity. Imagine a place where there is no evil. Imagine a place where there is no separation. Imagine a place where there is no death or sorrow or mourning. Imagine the beauty of a place where we will enjoy communion with God forever and ever. You can't even really imagine, I don't think, what that will be like. But God tells us it's coming. Secondly, John tells us about the new tabernacle. Verse 3, he, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, interestingly, the word that's translated dwelling place literally means tabernacle. And so you could translate verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will tabernacle with them. Children, you remember the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was, uh, before the temple was built, tabernacle was... Uh, a big tent, right? It was, a, it was a mobile place of worship. It would be like if we picked this church building up every week and moved it around to different places. The, the tabernacle was a mobile place of worship. It was a place where, where God would meet with his people. And, and the tabernacle was a, was a shadow of what, or better, who, was to come. It was a, it was a shadow of Jesus. John says in John 1.14, the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
Well, what is meant here that when we are told that in the new heaven and new earth, God's tabernacle will be with us, does does that mean that we're going to have another tent in which we worship? Does that mean that we're going to go back to the shadows of, of Old Testament worship? No, God himself will be the tabernacle. The point is, is that God himself will be with us. We will be with him. He will be our God. We will be his people. There will be closeness and and intimacy and fellowship with him that is no longer hindered by sin. Now, we enjoy fellowship with God right now. We belong to him. In fact, he, he placed his mark of ownership on us in our baptisms. But in the eternal state, that, that fellowship will no longer be hindered by sin. Our fellowship will be perfect. And then third, there's the new fountain. If you look at the middle of verse 6, it says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We all know what it's like when it's really hot. Uh, maybe you're, you're doing yard work. Maybe you're exercising or playing some sport. And, and we have, obviously, pretty hot temperatures around here this time of year. And, and if you're out in the heat for any length of time, you become really, really, really thirsty. And, and when you're thirsty, there's, there's nothing quite like water to satisfy your thirst. But, but eventually, you're going to get thirsty again. Eventually, you're going to go back outside, and you're going to get hot. You're going to get sweaty, and you're going to get thirsty all over again. But, but here, we're being told in, in graphic terms that, that one day, we will have ultimate satisfaction. We will never be thirsty again because we will be satisfied forever in the presence of our Savior. And so this passage is all about out with the old and in with the new. Now you take this passage, you take these eight verses, and you think about all that God tells us here. No more evil, no more chaos, no more separation, no more tears or death or mourning or pain. No more more sin hindering our fellowship with God. The beauty of the new heaven and new earth, perfect communion with God, eternal satisfaction in Jesus. And we might ask the question, is this too good to be true? I've had people say that to me about Christianity before. It, It sounds too good to be true. You mean you don't, have to, you don't have to do anything? You don't have to earn it? It sounds too good to be true. You go home today and you get an email from a Nigerian prince and he wants to share $17 million with you. I would encourage you not to respond to him. Most of us will take that email and immediately put it in the trash. You don't even give it a second thought. You don't even wonder. I wonder if this is real. Is this too good to be true? Is this a scam? Is this just some way to to get us to do what God wants us to do by, by promising us something that may never be true? A lot of people live their lives that way with no thought of eternity. We'll talk about that more tonight. Is this too good to be true? Well, notice verse 5. 
he who was seated on the throne is about to talk. Children, do you know who's seated on the throne? It's Jesus. This is, this is the one who is true man and true God. This is the one who gave his life for you. He is seated on the throne and he says, notice, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You might know someone who you believe to be very trustworthy. You know that if they tell you something, they're going to do it. They're going to be there for you. They're going to do what you need them to do. You know you can count on them. But at the end of the day, they're, they're still a, a flawed sinner just like you are. At the end of the day, all of us at some point have, have broken our promises. But this is no mere human being saying this. This is Jesus He says, I'm the one who's doing this. My words are trustworthy and true. This is the promise of of the one who cannot lie, who always keeps his word, that not one of his promises will fail to come to pass. But did you notice something? Did you notice it's not a promise for everyone? Verse 8 As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those whose lives are characterized by sinful rebellion, those who refuse to acknowledge and confess their sin, those who refuse to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will suffer the second death. And as we saw two weeks ago, this is eternal judgment. And so this wonderful promise, out with the old, in with the new, it's not for everyone. It's only for those who acknowledge their sin. It's only for those who come to Jesus. Now it's not saying, verse 8 is not saying that if you've ever done these things, you are going to hell for sure. If you've ever been a coward, if you've ever been faithless, if you've ever murdered someone either physically or in your heart, if you've ever committed sexual immorality, if you've ever been an idolater, if you've ever lied, you're going to the lake of fire. That's not what it's saying. We know from the testimony of Scripture that there are those who were once characterized by these sins who came to Christ and were forgiven and washed clean. What this is saying is that if you refuse to acknowledge and turn from your sin and turn to Christ in saving faith, this is what awaits you. What is the only way to escape that judgment? It is very simply to, to say to God, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have broken your law in word and thought and deed. God, I know that I deserve your righteous judgment. And I know that my only hope to escape that judgment is to confess my sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I believe in him. I trust in him. God, forgive me and wash me clean. 
Did you know that anyone who has ever come to God that way in true confession and faith, God has never and will never turn them away. In Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is the great hope of what awaits us, the new heaven and new earth. And at the end of the day, this this passage is reminding us that, that God is the only one who can do these things. Notice some of the language here. Verse 2, it says the the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It's not in us going up to God. It's, It's not in us climbing the ladder of obedience. It's not in us ascending the ladder of performance. It's not earthly politicians or or any other human being who can create heaven on earth. It's God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then if you look at verse 6, don't you love how the new fountain is described? It's called the spring of the water of life without payment. You, you, You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Give up on yourself. True satisfaction is found only in what Christ has done for us. So rest in him and and, and rejoice in what he has done for you. And, And when the burdens of life weigh you down and the difficulties of life start to get to you, God doesn't say he's going to take those things away necessarily. But he does say to keep your eye on what awaits you and to remember what is in store for you. And now as we come to this table this morning, we, in this table, in this meal, we enjoy fellowship with God. That's why we call this communion. We enjoy communion with God, but at the same time, don't forget that this table is pointing us ahead to the full communion, the full fellowship with no more sin that we will enjoy one day when Jesus returns. And all of the effects, all of the results of sin are gone forever. God gives us his word to encourage us and to strengthen us for the journey that lies ahead of us. We are pilgrims in this world. And as pilgrims, that means that we won't always find this world our home. Typically, we won't. But God gives us his word to strengthen, encourage, and comfort us as we walk that journey, as we look forward as well to what awaits us one day. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise once again for the marvelous promises that you give to us in your word. Lord, help us to, by faith, believe those promises, to embrace them. When life weighs us down, when the struggles are hard, we, we pray that we would be encouraged by what you tell us and that we would know there is coming a day, glorious day, a glorious eternity, when all of these things, all of the troubles and difficulties of life All of the effects of sin will be gone forever. Help us, Lord, to...
be still and to know that you are God and that our lives are in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name.